Thanks for joining me for the Pray for Micah podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review, and check out my YouTube channel and follow me on social media. Pray for Micah Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Pray for Micah podcast. And now your host, Micah Chrisman. Well, hello. Welcome to the Pray for Micah podcast, the Grain Valley, Missouri special, Christmas special. We're here with my mother and father, and uh, I've driven all the way here from Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, they've obliged me. I said I wanted to record their stories and have them share their life experiences for future generations, set the record straight for any kids who might have bickerings or things. No, <laughs> we get their tale on the on the docket. We get it on the, the official recording. And uh, yeah, we had a beautiful Christmas yesterday. It's snowing today. It's uh, really lovely here in Missouri in the wintry sense. <laughs> and uh, yeah, go ahead and just for, for the record, state your full name, dad and mom. And you'll share your main name first. Okay. So we'll have your middle name, everything, and we'll just go from there. We'll start with easy, easy lowball interview <laughs> question. <laughs> can you just share? Get this right. Can you share your first, your full name? I hope I can. Uh, Gordon Franklin Chrisman, and uh, I was born December twenty first, nineteen fifty two. All right. And you were born in Independence. Born in Independence, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Home of Harry S. Truman. That's right. <laughs> and I'm Shari Renee Anderson Chrisman, and I was born November 28th, 1954, in Berkeley, California. Okay. Let's make sure we got this mic. As... Okay. Is that gonna I fall need over? to eat my mic. Yeah. No, it's good. Did you get that? Yeah. Yeah, we got it. Just now get you the, the more nice, crisp voice of your mother. <laughs> So, yeah, we're going to just have a casual conversation. Like I said, uh, if this turns into a podcast episode, you all will get the inside scoop of who my parents are. But truthfully, if you're listening to this on my podcast, the reality is they're not talking to you. They're doing this recording with me to be able to talk to our future family generations. So you get a little sneak peek inside edition to hear their hearts and thoughts and their life stories. But at the end of the day, uh, we're talking to my hopefully future grandchildren that my mother is begging me and my brother to have <laughs> and <laughs> their future grandchildren. <laughs> and, um, you know, just something that in this technology world, unless an EMP blast or something knocks us back into the Stone Age, uh, ideally something like this can kind of live on forever when they start creating the future AI robots, and they need all the voice recordings of my parents <laughs> to be able to mimic their, their when we have the 3D virtual reality experience and we get to like interact with them in this podcast space. We'll use these recordings to be able to <laughs> facial recognition. Facial, ne- yeah, right. I probably have actually put you all in a very security bind with like. <laughs> State your first name, full name, yeah. maiden name. What's your social security yeah, we didn't number? Do that part. <laughs> and then everything in the future is just going to be like, gather this data, create these identities, make buy this house now. 
Well, we're going to just start from the beginning. You guys have shared kind of where you were born, but let's back up and we're just going to kind of bounce, you know, one between the other and I'll just be a good host and try to keep it even balanced. But we'll start with you, Dad. And let's hear about who were all your siblings, who were your parents, where did you uh, grow up at, and yeah, we'll just start there. So, well, let me. Uh, this is maybe good or bad, but um, let me start off with my mother was married twice. Is that all right there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And her first husband was Samuel Luttrell, but he, it was right during the war. And I don't know exactly what year, but maybe in 1944, 45, somewhere in there, her first husband passed away and had a heart attack. Right at Christmas. Right at Christmas Mm -hmm. time. And then my, um, had two stepbrothers named David Luttrell and Stephen Luttrell. And I never felt like them as being stepbrothers. We just grew up, even though they're about 10 years older than us. Um, But my mom then was going to church at a... Baptist Church in Blue Springs, and she met there my father, who was singing in a quartet, and he had come home from the war. He had been in Hawaii right after Pearl Harbor, and so he came home, and then they had met in church, and she was a fantastic musician. She could play anything on a piano and by ear and organ, and she was a music teacher, really, originally, and her first husband had been a violin teacher, so music was always a part of our family. And so they met, and then later on they married. And then my brother, uh, my brother, I was born first, of course, and my name was Chrisman. And then my second brother, uh, son, Jim, uh, Jim Chrisman, was born. And so there was two of us, two Chrismans and two Luttrells in this family. And um, so that's how, a little bit how we came to be a blended family at the very beginning. Um, does that kind of answer? Your dad's name was Frank. My dad was Frank Chrisman. And really... And who was your mom? My mom was Marjorie Chrisman. And uh, buck, her, but she her, was a buck. Her maiden name was Buck. And all her relatives had grown up, are farmers up in Iowa. But she had moved down here with Samuel and had been teaching school, and then when he had a heart attack, um, she just stayed here and then married my father. And uh, so that's kind of how we stayed in Blue Springs. But um, I don't know if that answered the that answered a great question, question or not. But Yeah, yeah, who your family was, their, their names. And, yeah, so I imagine it must have been, you know, I'm curious about when she got remarried. What was like the culture of the time? Like I was pretty, you know, okay, normal. Like, did was it hard to get remarried? Do you think for grandma? Like having two boys, you know? And I don't think so. I think it was back then. I think things were very more practical. After the Depression, World War Two, it was just a practical thing. I knew she loved my dad, but I think it was a practical thing. And um, so she, and of course, marriage was the respectable thing to do. Sure. You didn't live together like that. And so she married and then um, raised all four of us together uh, for a number of years. So they were already gone by the time we really got into junior high and high school. Mm. And so your dad, Franklin Chrisman, 
and he worked at the steel mill in Kansas City. He worked right? in Armco Steel. He was a hardworking guy. I'd never seen a man who could work. He could work even in high school. My brother was a, a great athlete. He could work us, too, into the ground. And um, <laughs> he was just a hardworking steel. He had grown up on a farm in northern Iowa called Lareda, Missouri. Then they had moved down to Kansas City, I imagine, because of uh, financial reasons. They moved to Kansas City, and he started working at a steel mill, Armco Steel, even before he went into the Army. And then after he got out of the Army, he returned to Armco Steel and worked there 40-some years before he retired. But um, he was just a real hardworking man. And while we were even living in Blue Springs, my mother, from her first marriage, had a big farm that had been uh, given to her and my two older brothers and my dad, Frank, would help work the farm. We raised cattle, pigs, and he was just always a hardworking guy. Um, and let me just say this. My dad was born in, I think, 1908 in a farmhouse, and then he didn't have a birth certificate or anything. And so when he retired later from Armco, he had to take the family Bible <laughs> to the Social Security office <laughs> to prove that he was 65. That was the legal proof back then of uh, how old he was. It was just a family Bible written in there. Huh. No formal birth certificate no. or another. Just like, where's tell, your... tell also what a great cook he was. Well, it, during the war, he was in a dog training outfit, like attack dogs in, in, up in the mountains at Schofield Barracks. I remember that in Hawaii. Um, and so, But he was such a great cook. All his unit somehow pulled it so that he just stayed and cooked all the time, and he didn't have to <laughs> fool with any of the dogs and animals. So growing up as a kid, we would come home from church on Sundays, and he would um, have this fantastic meal, roast or something. If he didn't go to church or if he got home early, he would start it, cornbread, you name it, he could cook it. And growing up then as we were in Boy Scouts, the scout leaders loved him. We'd go on a canoe trip, and he was, of course, at that time, he was uh, in his late 50s, and he didn't like going canoeing and sleeping <laughs> on the ground too much. He always took a cot or something. But when he went, though, he was always the cook and for our whole troop. And so when people came back, he had these fantastic meals prepared after canoeing or whatever we were doing. So... So I'm guessing that didn't rub off on you too well, except for <laughs> except for how to make pancakes. That, that's what, pancakes, eggs. I can do frozen fish sticks. I remember one time mom went on a missions trip with our sisters to Russia, and dad, they were gone for two weeks. And every day, dad and, and me and my brother, we all ate either eggs or pancakes for like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Well, we might have gone out to eat at McDonald's. Yeah, we might have gone to McDonald's too, but I just remember. And your mom, I think, cooked for you. <laughs> Well, Dad, uh, it's okay. I mean, it, I liked we loved those times, you know. We Caleb and I got real fat, you know, and happy. <laughs> well, Mom was gone. What did you guys eat while we were gone? Well, we had pancakes most days, <laughs> at least one meal a day. <laughs> well, that's really special. That's a family tradition that we do now. When the grandkids come over, he makes pancakes. He makes pancakes. Yeah. Don't do fish sticks. Don't do He's fish. never done fish sticks. I don't know where that comes from. That was more... I think his college days, but uh -huh. he says he has a claim that he can do that, but I've never <laughs> seen it. 
So. <laughs> well, mom, before we switch to you, I want to hear uh, dad just share a little bit about grandma because as you were just sharing about, like she was, you know, went to college um, in Iowa, didn't she? M- music education. Yeah, I think she went to maybe Iowa State. Uh, teachers college and it might have switched names now you know that was years ago um and uh she had um three brothers and herself and they were all musical they would get together and have uh family my uncle phil played trombone and john played the baritone and they all played musical instruments but they would gather together and play instruments all the time but my mom could play by ear, and she could play anything. And so she was just a, a good musician. But um, they just would all be together. So there was three bro- boys, uh, Charles, uh, Buck, Phil Buck, John Buck, and then Mom. So the four, four of them grew up on the farm up in Rhodes, Iowa. And you were just sharing this at the Christmas Eve service the other day. So while we're talking about Grandma and all the family, the Bucks, tell everybody kind of what that was like Christmas time. Well, at Christmas time, it was a magical time because the war, World War II ended in 1945. My uncles, um, Phil had been in the Battle of Bulge. John, I think, came through uh, D-Day. I'm not sure about Charles, where he was at. But my dad was in the South Pacific and Hawaii. But back that generation, they were all farmers within maybe 20 miles. About every farm up in Rhodes, Iowa, there was either my uncles, second uncles, uh, second cousins, family, about every farm. And they all farmed cooperatively, worked together. But so um, they came home from the war, and they all started families about the same time. So when I grew up, I had maybe 17 first cousins, and 15 of them were boys. And it was just the greatest time because you could snowmobile. There was always snow on the ground, it seemed like, every Christmas time. We'd go up for about a week, but there was always snow on the ground. We would snowmobile. We would hunt. Um, we would um, sled and toboggan, uh, just fun things, climb in barns. We just did everything boys would do, and they're all about the same age. And like, uh, for example, at Christmas time, we'd have maybe 30 or 40 of us in this big house, farmhouse, and I'd have 15 cousins around. They're all boys. So my grandma was a very practical woman. How do you shop for all those grandkids back then? So when we were going through the presents, if a cousin opened up their present for my grandma, and it was a it would be maybe a flashlight. Well, then we knew other 14 more flashlights <laughs> would show up. And they're all the same. Or one year, maybe be billfold. We'd all get billfolds. <laughs> so it was a very practical thing. But we would spend, after a big lunch, uh, opening presents lunch, then all the boys would be out on playing ice hockey um, with brooms. We didn't have great equipment back then and old skates, but brooms, push brooms. My uncles would be the referees or the the goalies, you know, and they'd have scoop shovels and, uh, we broke up about every broom there was (laughs) in the area. And uh, then we graduated after we got into more high school, we graduated to ice hockey sticks, (laughs) you know, and a little bit more professional (laughs) equipment. 
but um you know it'd be just a great time and uh I remember one time we were in college, no, yeah, college, and we were sitting up there with about a foot and a half of snow on the ground, and my brother, myself, and my cousin Ken were sitting there. We just come in from sledding, and uh, my parents were pretty uh, amazing when I think about this, but we just started talking, us three, and we said, hey, let's go, let's go to Florida. <laughs> and, you know, somehow we talked to our parents into letting us go. And so my cousin had a barracuda, so we put a mat in there, uh, kind of a mattress, and we took off, came through Kansas City, picked up some equipment, camping equipment, and we bummed around Florida for about <laughs> uh, a week, you know, going to Disney World and different things. And uh, we didn't have any money, and we would just pull up in somebody's yard at 2 o'clock in the morning in their driveway and sleep. You know, what? yeah, because we couldn't afford, we couldn't sleep on the beaches, you know, and so we just pull up there. We I don't think we ever stayed in a motel, so just and and you trusted Florida people enough to park in their driveway, yeah, back then, yeah. I wonder what the climate of Florida people back then were, you know. Well, I don't think we didn't get in trouble, but you know, it's just but it was just crazy times like that. I forgot to tell about the oranges. Oh, okay. Well, my came in through Kansas City. I had a a good friend. He was one of my Sunday school teachers in church. He said, hey, Gordon, pick me up a crate of oranges. And so um, we went through Florida, and we saw orange stands everywhere. <laughs> but we thought, well, no use hauling a big crate of oranges, you know, around. So we um, then on our way home, we started, we, got, we started to leave in the state. And we thought, oh, we need to get some oranges for Charlie. And uh, so then we couldn't find an orange stand anywhere. So I just stopped at a grocery store <laughs> and bought a crate of oranges. And, and he probably hated me. But it's the same type of oranges he probably could have bought here in Missouri. But I bought him a whole crate of oranges. So just uh, not too intelligent on our part, I guess. But It's like, wait a minute. I, I know this brand. This yeah. is already in my store. They yeah. already shipped this up here. But we just had a... Just fun times. It was magical, really, growing up with all my cousins, all living on farms. You'd go spend one night with one cousin at his place, then go to another, and we would do things together. Farming, I loved, you know, driving tractors around. We would go down the gravel roads in a tractor and with about a 20-foot rope, and we'd pull each other on skis. <laughs> You know, and uh, through the snow until you hit a gravel spot that was blown <laughs> off. Then they go flying, but just things like that. And we'd always end up every Christmas Eve, we would always go to church at a little Methodist church in Rhodes, Iowa, and we would go there and it'd be packed out with just farmers and people, good people, and um, we would have a Christmas Eve service, you know, mm -hmm. silent night. We'd always have a candle lighting service, passing the light, you know, back and forth. But um, that was just magical times. Um, you always look forward to it. And there was never, ever a bad time when you went up to Iowa with all the family. Hmm. And so when did Grandma bring you down to Kansas City? Was that like... That was just, oh, you would just go up there to visit. Yeah. Visit That's for a week. It was a little vacation. Gotcha. So, but when you were, you were born here, so you just always yeah. were here most of the time. Yeah. I was here most of the time, but we would go up to Iowa half for a week during Christmas, and then we would go up through the summer, 4th of July, um, 
all the time. Um, and my dad, we could buy fireworks in Missouri, but Iowa had uh, a ban on fireworks. And I don't know why, but my dad would bring maybe back then $100 worth of fireworks, which was <laughs> unbelievable amount back then, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. And so he, we'd take fireworks up, and every 4th of July, we would have big fireworks displays up there. And one time, my brothers were horsing around doing something stupid, my two older brothers. And uh, they somehow, they, all these fireworks were in our, my grandma's garage, which was kind of a detached garage opposite of her big farmhouse. And uh, some of they did something, and all of us... They set them on fire somehow. <laughs> and all of a sudden, fireworks, you know, big Roman candles and displays were going off everywhere. And we were surprised it didn't burn the whole place down. <laughs> but they all went off, about $100 worth of oh boxes. My so my brothers got into big, big trouble. trouble for that. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sheriff gets called. Why is it? How this fire starts? <laughs> right. Well, Mama... Let's hear about California now. Let's hear about what was it like? Go ahead, go through all your siblings. Okay. Parents' names. And I'm the oldest of four. My brother is 13 months younger than I, and he is named Norman. And of course, everybody's last name was Anderson. Then I had a sister named Sean, still have her. And then Joe was the baby, Joe. And um, we lived in the Bay Area, in the Walnut Creek area. And then my dad. Um, somehow I think part of it, he took it part of his inheritance early and he got this huge ranch up on 101 highway, um, in a little town called Laytonville. And it was about 500 acres and it was nestled in the valley uh, of these mountains. And the mountains, if you had gone as the crow flies was about 20, 30 miles from the ocean. So it was oh, really, yeah, it was really close. And so we would get the fog, you know, from the morning ocean in the valley and um, he raised. He tried to raise Angus cattle. It's five hundred miles from. Yeah, and we were very poor. I didn't know that we were poor, except for that my mother made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day, all through my elementary school years. That's all I had. So, eventually, I think I was about fifth or sixth grade. I said, "Could I just have bread with mayonnaise and lettuce?" Because I knew we couldn't afford meat. So, she would make those for us. She's like, "Are you sure?" And I was like, "I just wanted my friends." To see that I wasn't quite that poor. <laughs> Guess our pancake days were a little bit yeah. higher, a little, little nicer. A lot, than a lot more money of pancakes, yeah. <laughs> but my brother and I, Norm and I, were very, very close, and we explored the farm or the ranch all day long. My my parents did not have a good marriage. Um, my mom was fifteen when she got married. She had been sixteen for three days when she had me, and so she had four kids by the age of about twenty-one, and um, she didn't finish school. My dad did, and um, but they knew right when they got married that it was a mistake. They eloped. They went from to Nevada to Reno to get married, and their parents were against it. And um, but when they got pregnant with me, my dad decided that he should take care of her and me, and so. And then we had kids, bang, bang, bang. So then it was very um, a depressed area. Um, and so he worked at a gas station for a while. And then he was at a, a he, the job he really liked was being a forest ranger up in the mountains. He would watch for forest fires, but he could be away from the family for two, three months at a time. So my mom was kind of a single mom trying to make it by herself. 
um, down in the valley. But it was really good times with Norman. Um, we found a Model A, a broken Model A down in, in the creek. Now, this is in the ranch. At the ranch. Oh, yeah, the ranch. And so... Um, and the ranch had started out as a hunting ranch for all the boys and my grandpa. Um, and his name was Lawrence and um, Grammy's name was Ruth. And um, they had four boys. No, they had three boys and a girl. And uh, my dad was the baby of all of them. So, um, And they had been in insurance and banking. So they were multimillionaires. Um, but we weren't. <laughs> and so... Um, just missed it. Yeah, Whatever just that inheritance missed it. Just was. Missed it. But my dad built the barn all by himself. Um, he just built a barn and we lived in the... There was no heat in that building in the little house we lived in. And so we had a fireplace and we cut our own wood. We cut our own Christmas trees. And um, those were good years. Norman and I... Um, tried to dig out the Model A and then the waters would come through and bury it in sand again. And then he'd try to talk me into, you know, helping him again. And so we never did get it out, but he promised me, he said, someday I'm going to give you a ride, Chirene, in um, a, my Model A. And true to word, he, he grew up, he had a big, long, terrible, wonderful life. And then he ended up in the Branson area and he has now a whole building full of Model A's. <laughs> and he did give me a ride in his Model A. So that was so kind why of was it dream. keep getting buried what do you mean because like? well it was in, in now what we would call it we called it a creek but it would be like a river in missouri it was huge and i mean it had like um trout in it steelhead trout that would come up and daddy built a dam and so we had all this water and stuff anyway when so it, it rains a lot in california especially in the winter time it's more green there it's all brown in the summertime but it's not that way here. It's the opposite. But um, so the waters would come through. There'd be lots and lots of water, and it would. It was in the creek bank, and so the, it would cover all up with sand again. So then we'd have to try to dig it out. And... <laughs> tell tell me about missions. The forest fires and and the mountain lions. So and... there was a lot of forest fires around there, and when it when they happened, all the animals would come down into the valley. So all of a sudden we we couldn't explore. Gordon, Micah, and I and. Not Micah, that's you. Uh, Norman. Norman, my brother Norm. And I, um, it's because there'd be bobcats and mountain lions and all kinds of stuff down in the valley then, and lots of timber rattlers, like massive timber rattlers. Oh, my God. And I know it was terrifying. And they would be in our yard. One day I stepped out of the front door right over the top of a rattler. He was laying right there. So. Oh, my Lord. My mother had this little derringer, and she'd go out and shoot him. And. <laughs> So, you Try know, to picture Grandma Shari. Grandma Shari was quite well, she was by herself, you know. So, <laughs> I'll tell you a story really quick about the there was a rabid skunk. I mean, it was had rabies and it was falling this way and falling that way. And <laughs> so, we got in the car and we're driving across the valley. And my mother's trying to shoot it, and it, she would shoot the ground, and the thing would go over and smell the ground. <laughs> and then it would go over. Finally, we came to this little creek, and Norman picked up a a branch and he started trying to hit it but he just went white as a ghost and he he killed it he killed it with this branch but he thought he was getting um rabies rabies <laughs> <laughs> he was he was probably 10 or 11 i mean he was a little kid we were little kids too one time he went for a walk and he came back and he had rattles he had killed the rattlesnake and cut off its rattles <laughs> and he was probably 10 so Jesus. yeah we were it was not a 
I mean, these days, you know, we did. I mean, you worry about kidnappers in your yard. We worried about snakes. rattlesnakes. That's why I hate snakes. Yeah, all snakes. Yeah, you'd be gone for like all day. all day. My mother wouldn't care. She watched a lot of soap operas, and she wouldn't care that we were gone. And we just would disappear, and we'd climb rocks. And we found this one rock had all this fool's gold in it, but we thought it was real gold. Oh. And so when my grandpa came to visit, we said, we want to show you our secret place. And so we took him to the where the gold was, and he says, oh, I'm sorry, kids, this is fool's gold. It's not real gold. And really, her place had a lot of history. Tell about Farley. Yeah, so, there, well, there was Indians everywhere, and there's this one place where the, in the University of Berkeley came up to check it because we found all these arrowheads. You find arrowheads all the time. After mm-hmm. range, you'd find arrowheads. But it was a perfectly green area because of where they had camped, and um, it was all kinds of pottery and shards of things that, were theirs i think they were i I, i'm not sure what what oh gosh i can't remember if they were navajo or if they were blackfeet but then up on the hill by our house um there was a a water tower and it had some of the purest best water ever clear fresh water but there was a grave beside it and it was andrew jackson farley and he was um a pioneer guy that had come back there he wasn't really Andrew Jackson, like the president, (laughs) but that was his name. And uh, my mom, I remember she went up and cleaned up that whole little grave area. And, and within a day or two, she was just covered in poison ivy. (laughs) Oh no. Poison oak. It was poison oak back then. Yeah. (laughs) So it was one wonderful thing. So then we, the bottom fell out of the cattle market and daddy moved us all to Iowa. (coughs) And so we're, and I didn't meet Gordon in Iowa, but tell everybody, what you wanted? What was your dream? Well, um, I don't know when it happened, but or when. But I always thought I just admired all the people from Iowa, all the farmers and people, and uh, and of course I didn't. Ha- I only had two girl cousins out of all of these cousins, <laughs> but uh, I always thought, man, you'd be kind of neat to marry a Iowa farm girl. I don't know how I got that in my head, but I said well, I made a kind of a prayer. I said, Lord, help me to marry a Iowa farm girl. And then years later, I met Shari, and she in Missouri, was. in Missouri. In Missouri, so yeah. And here I was an Iowa farm girl. So I was eleven when when I moved to Iowa. So do you want to share about that journey of just like because your dad sold the ranch to buy cattle, right? To and like... the and the farm he paid for the farm outright. So, so what made him do Missouri? Like why not Oklahoma? Or... Well, his parents were actually from Warrensburg. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I think my Grammy came from Sedalia. Now, my sister, Sean, who does all the genealogy of our family, probably knows this better than I. Um, but I count on that, right? <laughs> I think she's got the info. Well, I that's why we're doing this. We're that's helping right. her out. Eventually, somebody's future generations will right. listen to this and be like, oh, wait, where was right. See, I didn't know his your dad's parents. Um, they lived in Warrensburg. And one of them had was from Sedalia. And um, so during the Great Depression, they left and went to California and bought land there and became multimillionaires. There was a bank that built on the land and had to pay them rent for like 100 years or something like that. And then my grampy was a banker. He was also in insurance, which is interesting because I became an insurance agent (laughs) later on in life. But um, so that's how they ended up in California. So when they came back, Daddy looked around, I think, the um, Warrensburg area. But somehow he decided that southern 
Iowa was more fertile for cows and stuff. And it was it was a lot of very flat land, very lush. And, um, of course, anything looks lush to Northern California because it's so dry. But... Um, Anyway, he bought he bought a farm there. It was about 80 acres and much smaller than what we had in California, but much more lush. He raised um, alfalfa and the Angus purebred Angus cattle. He was so proud of his bulls and <laughs> stuff that he had. And again, he built barns and um, or fixed up some of the barns that were there. We were in a three-story farmhouse. It was originally built for two families with a common room in between. And so hmm. we all had our own bedrooms. and But that's also was some of the darkest times of my life because my dad was extremely depressed. And whereas Gordon grew up in a magical world, mine was not. Mine was more of a nightmare. Um, he, he began to um, come into my bedroom at night and lay down on the bed and cry. He would just cry, and I'd say, please, Daddy, go talk to Mom. I was 11. I had caught him a few times when I was 9 and 10 watching me through the um, bathroom window when I was taking a bath, and I'd go right to my mom and tell her, and she would go to him, and then she'd come back, and we talked about it. And then one time he exposed himself to me, and I told her about it. But she um, was, you know, she'd gotten married when she was 15. She was terrified to lose him because she had no job, no education, nothing. And um, he was the sole breadwinner. So, um, and I wasn't going to go into this, but I will since this is for our family. Um, when I was um, 11, he... Um, threw me down on a pile of dirty clothes in our basement and raped me. And um, I had no idea what sex was. We didn't talk about that kind of stuff. Back in those days, even the word divorce was um, a, a dirty word. Nobody got divorced. And certainly there wasn't anything like that. And um, But I had, already, I had already been conditioned to realize I can't go to Mama because she won't help me. And so I never told her about that. But... Um, so all through those early years, um, I was constantly running from him, hiding from him, staying at school. Um, and I was an, an A-plus student at school. I was involved in every sport, every musical thing that I could be involved in so I didn't have to go home. My mom then decided she would get a job. So she left the house, and now I was there alone with my father and my siblings and um, Joey was I think maybe three or so because I was still changing diapers and feeding him and cooking the meals and doing the laundry and basically you know it was never my choice or my desire to do that but I always thought I'm going to go crazy I'm going to go someplace and be crazy and I'm going to accidentally tell them what my father is doing to our family, and he'll come and kill me. And mm -hmm. so, um, should I keep going? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know this is tough to talk about, and we don't have to go into details about well, it. But you we know can, what? It's for the family, and I, I will share was, this with yeah. my family. And we can, 
understand that he was also an alcoholic. He wasn't an alcoholic then. Oh, he was Nothing wasn't. at that oh, time. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. But he was extremely tortured man. I would have to say, and I, I know your audience might not agree with this, but I think the demons tortured him. I think there really was an evil that made him constantly depressed. He would go for long walks and check on the cows. He would go in and he was extremely musical. He could sit down and play the piano by ear, these huge, huge pieces with all with all this you know stuff going on and then he played the banjo and he played the harmonica but it was it was always moody music it was always sad and um <clears throat> he was extremely um violent with my brothers he beat them and um he just was he just was not a good man and he was unhappy and i guess he felt stuck and um finally um it's my senior year I'm 17, so I was always a year younger than everybody else because we started school earlier in California. So um, I graduated when I was 17, and I told him I was gonna, I wanted to go to a university, and he says, I won't help you. There'll be no money for that. And um, I said, I don't care. I'm going to do it. And I remember we were down hmm. in the basement, and he was crying, and he was cleaning a gun at a table he had set up down there. And I, he was putting it back together again. And I turned around and I told, and I didn't care. I thought he was going to shoot himself or me because he was crying. But at that moment, I thought, I, I don't care. I didn't think I could be free of him. I just knew I needed to get out of there. And so um, I turned around to go up the stairs. And by golly, he didn't shoot me or himself. Hmm. And I went all the way up to my third-story bedroom and went in and locked my door. And I thought, for the first time, I felt powerful. I thought, I can say no to him. Hmm. He has no power over me. And he never touched me again after that hmm. because I th- think he knew that I could. Boy, if that had happened in this day and age, he would have gone to prison. It would have yeah. been the end of all that. And uh, for all of us, would it, my mom could have figured it out, I guess. But I remember you saying one time that culturally back then everything family drama of any kind was like you don't talk to anybody about our finances you don't talk about anything you don't talk about marriage problems you don't talk about yep if i mentioned anything at school about selling the cows or anything my dad would just fly off the handle and um, his motive um he would just hit you in the face just wherever he wanted to hit you once he picked up a rubber hose like a garden hose and just beat my brother he was writhing on the ground never forget that so, I did go to school, and um, I went to American Institute of Business in Des Moines, Iowa, <laughs> and I had, um, I didn't own a car, I didn't know anything, but I went and took out a, a loan, my first loan, and nobody co-signed or anything, I, it was mine, and um, I had a, I was in debt, <laughs> and but I went. I thought I've got to learn a skill so I can put myself through university because I wanted to be a writer or a singer. I had been singing all through. I had this wonderful um, math teacher that who was also did music in Diagonal, Iowa, and they called it Diagonal because the train tracks went diagonally through it. <laughs> and she loved me. She just doted on me. She was a complete atheist. Um, and her truth, though, was bless her, her heart. Bless her heart. <laughs> yeah, there's a secret to that. You know what? I'm still friends with her on Facebook. She's in her 80s now, and um, she invited me to her home. So I saw some, new, some 
normal normalcy, but her son had um, cystic fibrosis and he died, and it was devastating to me at his funeral, um, because I my mother was taking us to the Lutheran church, so I knew about God, and um, and I loved him, but I had I had that was it. I just had this head knowledge about him, and um, at the funeral, they had uh, Puff the Magic Dragon, and they they told his sister that he was in the ground and he was rotting and i was i was just devastated i thought there's no hope here you know mm. you're just gonna rot in the ground that's not the truth you know i know there's a heaven there's got to be a heaven right because certainly there's a hell <laughs> so um anyway I, dig I digress i'm in i'm in iowa um at the at uh, Des Moines and I'm going to school and again I'm straight A student and adored and I'm having a wonderful time I'm living with three other girls in kind of a an apartment and um, we just had a wonderful time I went to see a movie called Thief in the Night mm -hmm. and it was filmed in Des Moines and I came out I went to the premiere showing of it, it scared the P. Waddens out of me I, I thought know they filmed that in they did it's from Des Moines and and I went to the premiere of it and so here I am in my mini skirt you know and everybody <laughs> I mean we're all wearing mini skirts and stuff and um and I learned that Jesus is coming back and it's not going to be good. And I'm like, it's going to be a thief in the night. Oh my gosh, there's a rapture. And I thought, oh no, I had no idea about it. So that's just kind of a little bit of background. Just put that back in the back somewhere. I was like, huh, there's more to this Bible stuff than I know. I had a little Bible, a little white Bible that had a zipper thingy on it. But boy, it was pristine, you know, and you carried it to church. But I never read it. I never <laughs> did anything, but I had it. So shall I keep going? Yeah, no, go ahead. Okay, well, you look like you're going to talk, so I thought maybe No, no, I no. I just, uh, sometimes I'm just, uh, just ch looking over here to check on recording stuff. Okay. Go to Kansas City. Well, so, um, no, I can't go there yet. Yeah, take your time. Go, where, where's Unless the next Unless you step? want me to do no, that. No. no. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you just, you just sit over there and yeah, keep just, breathing into that microphone, you had, you had a magical, <laughs> you know, let me let me tell how I finally got a magical life, which was with my Gordon. I finally got magic, we're, but we're, it was later on. Oh, we yeah. can't we can't spoil it yet. No. I mean, we know that that's where it's going. But that's I... right. Well, that's kind of the spoiler. <laughs> uh, so, um, in the meanwhile, my father left my mother while I'm at school, and he well he he built a house down in the in Kimberling City area, right on the lake, big beautiful home, and he and my uncle went into business together in real estate. And so um, all of a sudden he was drinking and partying and that's when he became an alcoholic. And um, he left my mom and I'm in Iowa in, you know, the farm's gone. I have no place to go home to. And I finished my nine month business college with my little tiny receptionist degree. <laughs> and so and so I left Des Moines and I went home that summer. My dad um, got me had already gotten me a job at the Stone Arch County um, thing. I was doing Stone Arch County stuff and um, on plats and different things. And while I was at work, he took my paid for little Ford Falcon and he went and traded it in on a, the most beautiful lemon colored um, Maverick ever and there it was in the parking lot when I came out of work and guess what it was my car with car payments his name was not on it hmm. 
and he was plotting to make it impossible for me to leave. So I'd have to stay there. And he You're had a job for you. me, and he was trying. Yeah, he didn't try to touch me again, but he was trying to keep me there. And so um, at the end of the summer, I had announced that I was going to move to Independence, Missouri. Hmm. because um, I had a, a, a boyfriend from Iowa. His dad lived in Independence, and he was going to come there. We were going to see if, if if that was a possibility. Well, his name was Gary, and Gary hated Independence. He hated the city and everything else, so he moved back to Iowa. So here I was all by myself. I had worked here for a year at that time. I had worked in um, a medical at, at the Independence Medical Center was where I worked, and then um, – I got this part-time job through a, a part-time agency called Part-Time with the Kansas City Philharmonic. They needed me just for a month to be their receptionist. And so I was working there. And um, my father, the day that I left home, my father left my mother, I guess I should say that. And so she said to me, I don't want to see you again. Don't ever come home. Hmm. So... I know, no, I might cry. <laughs> I'm sitting in my apartment, this tiny little one-bedroom apartment that's an upstairs of a house, actually. And um, I'm thinking, I'm going to kill myself. I had a gas stove, and I thought, I'll just turn it on, and I'll just go to sleep. I thought that would be a great way to die. And I had this cat. I did, I did have a cat, and her name was Tabitha. And she was all over me, trying to comfort me. And... Um, there were other people living in the house. There was a family downstairs and a guy that lived across the hall. And I would have killed all of us, but I was so selfish and so thinking about, you know, suicide is extremely selfish. I've heard it say that it is a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm. I'll say that again for whoever's listening, because I know you've lost people to suicide too and how painful that is because you want to you reach out to these people, but they don't tell you that they really are going to do it. It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If I had committed suicide when I was 19, <clears throat> I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. Yeah. So I was going to do that, and um, I was sitting on my couch, and my cat was all over trying to comfort me, and I was snotting, and I wasn't even wiping it away with tissues. It was just snotting, and I think, I'm really going to do this. I'm just going to go turn the the gas on and I heard a voice a man's voice there was nobody in my apartment and it was right here by my by my right ear and I just knew it was God and he said and this is what he said verbatim he said Shari call me by my name he said Shari I have a purpose and a plan for your life I have called you to be an encourager and he started to say some other things which to this day I don't know what it was except for I just don't know what it was because I started to laugh hysterically, laughing. I thought, that's the most, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. I'm about to commit suicide. You think I can encourage somebody else right now? And so I just, I laughed probably for 15, no, for five minutes, just uh, laughing. But I know that that my cat heard him because she laid down beside me and just started purring. I don't know if you were in the room, if you would have heard it, but it wasn't in my head voice. It was in my ear voice. And so I, and it was a man and I knew it was Jesus. And so I just got really quiet and I didn't say anything after a while. I was, ex I was exhausted. It was five o'clock on a Saturday evening in October. And I had, I had felt so lonely that I knew that if I committed suicide, nobody would find my body 
until the rent was due on November 1st. And so, um, I mean, I don't know if you've ever, if anybody's ever felt that lonely before. Yeah. So that you're so, you're so unimportant in anybody's life that nobody would even know, right? I was in a temporary job. My parents didn't want to see me. And um, my brothers were already into alcohol and drugs. My sister was, she'd go to school and go home and she was um, an A student, but she just, she did tell me years later when the truth came out and I did tell my family, all of everybody, what happened. She said, I wonder because daddy began being out in the woods and he would watch through my bedroom window. And she said, I, there were no curtains on the windows because it was a brand new house and she would go in the closet to get dressed because she knew that daddy was watching her. So praise God, they got divorced and he moved away because he might've tried to do something to Sean too. So I'm here on my couch and I'm quiet and I'm thinking about it. And so I stood up and I said out loud, I said, well, if you have a plan for my life, then I'm going to live for you. And I went and laid down and went to bed with my clothes on at five o'clock on a Saturday evening. And the next morning I woke up and I thought, I'm going to go to the Lutheran church. I saw one um, on the 39th street and it was, um, was the name of St. Paul's Lutheran Church or something like that. And so anyway, I went and everything was alive. The organ music was alive and the <laughs> preacher was alive. And I was like, I've got to find out about this Jesus. And um, and so I was just so excited about this church. Right. <laughs> and so the, I saw they had a bulletin and it said that they were having a meeting on Monday night. And it was the um, deacons were meeting. So Monday night, I showed up for the deacons meeting, which is all men, by the way. And so <laughs> they were like, why are you here? Seven o'clock. What is this you know? deacons meeting? Well, I didn't know what a deacon was. I didn't know. <laughs> but I said. That would be important. I should go to that. I should go to that. And they said, why are you here? And I said, I don't know, but it said you had a meeting. And I thought, <laughs> I should come. <laughs> so anyway, I learned about church stuff later on. And I'll, I'll, I can stop there if you want to go to daddy for a while. No, let's let's keep uh, going. Hey, let me just say this: that Shari was is probably the smartest person I've ever known, and she was the assistant. She didn't say, but she became the assistant manager of a major orchestra. Well, that's why I was hoping Mom could share more about the Philharmonic. Yeah, share that and stuff and about Chattanooga. Well, well okay. Because <laughs> then this will be a nice segue once we hear how your career choices and what led it, we can jump over to We can Dad. finally figure out how did the Iowa girl meet the Missouri how, boy. How did that happen? Yeah. yeah. Well, I was still, I, I lasted four years at the Kansas City Philharmonic. And now I was this on fire you know, person going to church. And back then this was in the eighties and um, there was a movement called, um, I found it. It was on billboards everywhere. I found it. I found it. And the Jesus movement was the hippies. Um, if you've read some of the stuff like the churches in California and stuff, it finally got here to the Midwest. Um, but you know, they would play guitars and they were having churches in homes and you know they were actually opening up their bibles and reading them and marking in their bibles <laughs> and so i found this little home group and it wasn't lutheran i don't know what it was but it was not far from where i was living in in independence in inglewood and so i started going to it and i realized i didn't know a thing about the bible 
I didn't even know how to use the table of contents, nothing. <laughs> and I, I certainly wasn't going to mark in my little pristine white Lutheran Bible. So I went out and bought a big Bible and I bought those, those sticky tabs, you know, so I could mm -hmm. figure out where those were. And I stayed up all night with markers, highlighters, marking stuff and wrinkling up the pages because I wanted, <laughs> I didn't want anybody to know that I didn't know anything about the Bible. And so we've and all I, been there. I if you're know. in church culture, you got to make sure the Bible looks well read. And, 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 yeah. You want, because these people were reading their Bibles every day and having something called a quiet time. I'm like, what is this? So, um, and I'm, I'm going to the Philharmonic. So the Philharmonic then was this wonderful experience. I got to wear beautiful gowns, long gowns. Um, and uh, when I first started there, I was a receptionist. And then I learned about ticket sales and I learned about the public relations. And um, I, after about uh, three years, they went on strike because they were all union. And she, we had a staff of about 15 people and they narrowed it down to four. And mm. I was one of them. And I was still just the uh, receptionist there, but I knew all these other areas. So my boss, her name was Nancy Size, she wanted to keep me. Now she had come from Chattanooga and had come here. And, and so she was taking us all through this, all the negotiations and everything with that. And, um, and then it was resolved and she said, you're really too young for me to make you the assistant manager, but I know you can do this. So I'm going to make you an assistant to the manager. And that was just for a few months. And then she made me assistant manager. And I was this, the youngest assistant manager in the whole world <laughs> of a major orchestra. It was a Philharmonic then. It was it turned into the symphony later. They were full-time musicians. They were on. And I got to travel with them. So I went to Carnegie Hall and um, the Kennedy Center. I mean, it was just a true head trip. I was hobnobbing with all of these rich and famous people. My my mom came to, oh, and I never did get back to my mom. My mom um, did give her life to Jesus as well about the same time. And, um, and we went through this wonderful healing time. <clears throat> and I was able to t tell her then finally, and he, and she asked forgiveness. And so, um, you know, forgiveness can be such a, a wonderful thing in our lives we can either hold on to that bitterness and decide and it'll ruin you it'll ruin you for the rest of your life mm. or <clears throat> you can forgive and i did end up forgiving my dad i'll leave the philharmonic for just a minute to go back to sure. my dad yeah. because after i'm doing this whole journey of i'm learning about forgiveness and so while i'm still at the philharmonic i'm thinking i need to forgive my father yeah. and um so i fasted for a whole week I didn't eat, do anything but water. You would have thought I'd lost some weight, but I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. But I I called him. Nobody knew I was going to go see him. And I went. He had a boat. And so we went out on the lake. And he, you know, was quite a partier at this time. So he's drinking. And I, I didn't have anything to drink. But we're out on the lake. And um, I told him. Bless you. I told him. Oh, Daddy, I want you to know that I forgive you for what you did to me. And he looked at me through those hazy, glassy eyes because he was really very drunk. He said, Shari Renee, I don't need or want your forgiveness. Hmm. But I had learned that it wasn't my responsibility. His rea re reaction wasn't my responsibility. My responsibility was just to 
be obedient to obey him because I do to forgive him because I thought I'm not letting this man steal one moment of my life hmm. I'm not going to worry about this I'm not going to feel guilty about this I'm not going to feel less than everyone else I am done here and that's where I left it was in that water hmm. and but you know it was pretty stupid he could have he could have dumped me over the in the river and, or in the in the lake and nobody would have ever found my body even. I was still afraid that he would kill me wow. because he was had been such a violent guy. So anyway, I go back to the Philharmonic and um, now I'm the assistant manager and I'm getting to write grants and some of the stuff that you have gotten to do too. And I was getting to write, be a writer. I wrote all of the press releases for all of the news outlets and stuff, which I I watch you do this stuff now, and I think, oh, <laughs> you took that so much farther than I could have taken it. And my life was surrounded with music. I didn't know the difference between Bach and Beethoven when I went, <laughs> but I learned really quick, and sure. um, it was a wonderful trip. So then, while I'm there, my boss decides that she's going to take another position down in Houston, Texas. And she said, Shari... They're going to replace all the staff because it's kind of like when the president of the United States comes in and he gets a whole new staff. That's the way they do it. So she said, I came from TV. And she said, um, before she had done this, this at Chattanooga Orchestra, she said you could look in TV or media or whatever. But then Chattanooga needed a, symph some, a manager. Did you know, do you know this whole story? Yeah. I told but you I want before? you to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Your I grandkids thought. haven't heard it. No, <laughs> they haven't heard my, my grandkids. And so I, um, I fl they flew me down to Chattanooga, and I was there for three days. And they, t they wined and dined me, and, um, and I, I did drink wine, and my favorite drink was um, you did? Tom Collins. Oh, yeah, I love wine. You did what Jesus did? Yeah, wine was, <laughs> wine was my drink. But when I would go out, like, with Marty Nichols and the people from the plaza and things like the, the upper echelon, then they wanted me to have a Tom Collins, so I always oh, had a Tom, Tom Collins. Collins. Well, they tasted pretty good. So um, anyway, they said I could hire and fire, and I could paint the offices. I could do whatever I wanted because they knew they were getting another Nancy. They knew she, I had been her protege, and she raved about me. She said she's ready to manage an orchestra. And so, but what city was this? In Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga. I I was also a Christian, and I was really praying about it. And I was like, I really want to be in God's will. I want to know what He wants for my life. I don't want to make the wrong decisions. So I went to stay with my mom, and I prayed. God didn't say anything to me that whole weekend. And I'm driving back on Highway 13, and all of a sudden, I heard in my spirit. I never have heard an audible voice again, but in my spirit, he said to me, what are your heart's desires? Just a question out of the blue. So I knew it wasn't me. And I said, well, I don't know. So I drove probably for another 30 minutes, and finally I said um, out loud, because I was always talking to him out loud, I said, well, um, I want to be married, and I want to serve you full time. And he said, just as quickly, as clear as anything into my spirit, he said, if you go to Chattanooga, I will continue to bless you, but you will never reach the fulfillment of your heart's desires. Hmm. So that was a Sunday. I was coming back from my mom's. On Monday morning, I went and told Nancy, I said, I um, am not going to take the job in Chattanooga. Yeah. And she said, well, I've already announced my leaving, and your job is now on the line. You better figure it out. So now here's the other weird coincidence. 
Um, but, you know, with God, there are no coincidences, only divine appointments. <laughs> um, somebody, they were starting Channel 50, TV 50, Christian TV station in Kansas City. And they needed to go to the community leaders. The FCC required them to go and do a, a survey, a questionnaire of why it would be needed. And when they came, they wanted to interview Nancy. But she said, she sent them to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had had this experience and I knew there was going to be a Christian TV station. I want to tell you another really quick story, too, that happened at the Philharmonic. I hired a black girl named Claudia, and um, she worked in the mailroom. And one day she came into my office and closed the door, and she was sobbing. And um, she said, um, can I talk with you? And I said, yeah, absolutely. She sat down, and um, what's the matter? And she said, we were on the ninth floor in downtown Kansas City. And uh, she said, I think I'm pregnant. And she said, I have a little girl. And she said, um, but I, 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 this is my first real job, and I'm trying to get off of, you know, all of the assistance and everything. And she said, so we had these great big windows with no screens on them. And she said, I opened the window, and she said, I was going to jump out. And she said, your face flashed in front of my eyes. And she said, I have to know what's so different about you. I have to know why you're so happy. Now, I didn't know how to lead her to Jesus other than just to tell her, it's Jesus. You know, he, he's changed my life. So she didn't have a car, and I used to drive down on Troost, which is where you used to live, right? in my bright lemon yellow Maverick, <laughs> and I would pick her up, and I would take her to church on Sundays and Wednesdays, and she finally got saved there. I was the only white face in the entire neighborhood. <laughs> she taught me how to iron her hair. I mean, we had the most fun time. You know, she, oh. I asked her if black people had white dandruff or black dandruff. <laughs> I didn't know anything about black people. I grew up in an all-white environment, but I just loved this girl. And so, anyway, then eventually she went and got another job someplace else. I will tell you one more thing. I was having lunch um, and kind of a... It was where well, you walk by the window, and I was having wine with somebody. And she walked by the window, and I waved at her and everything. And she came, and then later on, she came into my office. She said, Shari, do Christians drink? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I, it was important to her that I didn't drink, so I quit drinking because huh. I thought – which is probably good. Maybe I could would have turned into a lush. My grandma was a lush, and my father <laughs> ended up being a lush. So it was probably a good thing I didn't do that because I probably would have been one too. So anyway, but there you were encouraging here somebody. Here I was encouraging. That's my whole life now has been encouraging. It totally flipped things around. My my life has become much more. I have the, he gave me this gift where I have this empathy where I can really put myself in other people's shoes and I, so that I have compassion. I don't think I had it all those years. But what, that moment that I gave my life to him, I began to think about other people and not mm. so much on me. So <clears throat> now I hear about this thing. I'm going to lose my job. I hear the, the, the president comes in and he talks to the um, business manager. My office is right next to it. And they say, yeah, we're going to have to fire Shari. She thinks just like Nancy. And they said, he said, yeah, but we got to keep her through this whole process because we can't afford to lose her. <laughs> and so I knew then, you know. So I sent out my resume, and um, I sent it to uh, Kansas City Youth for Christ because they were starting a new TV station. Now I'm going to, at this point, I'm going to let Daddy take over the story because this is where Daddy comes in. <laughs> well, do you want me to start there or back up in high school? 
let's start with high school real quick. Okay. Yeah, we'll just get. We'll come back okay. to that. I yeah. talked about Christmases and everything. Anyway, I grew up in Blue Springs, Missouri, <laughs> and um, you know when we had a farm here too, and so I'd help my dad doing things, but uh, had a great uh, high school experience and uh, just fun things, and I was involved in music and. Uh, band and all that and uh, I took piano lessons as a pianist my mom had been a uh, choir a music teacher at uh, earlier my brother Steve became an orchestra leader and a and a teacher in Wichita and uh, so and my brother younger brother Jim went to college too we both Jim and I went to Southwest Baptist University uh, after we graduated and we both majored in music so uh, I know this is an, a side route, but I, please share the story with the kids of the pranks y'all did, the notorious <laughs> hall that you lived in. Just just a little five minute little side note. I want to hear the story about you running through the neighborhoods, <laughs> tell people that. Well, of course, we went to a small private uh, Baptist college, but I had a dorm uh, full of guys, and our floor was called Third Floor Floor Beasley. And it was notorious for doing things that aren't great. And uh, they were just always doing pranks. And um, they probably weren't, most of us, thinking about education, but fun things. But we would, like, um, in the middle of the night, we would go out and we'd go to the girls' dorm. And back then, the cars had the old metal rim uh, where you honk the horn. And we'd have, there'd be 40 guys sitting in a parking lot. Back then, in this little town of Bolivar, Missouri, you never locked your cars. And so we would put duct tape around it and then uh, open up, lock all the doors. And we just have one door open and you're standing there. And somebody would motion one, two, three. And then everybody would push down 40 car horns <laughs> and take the duct tape and wrap it around the column, steering column. And then, uh, lock the other door and we'd leave and then we'd have the police chasing us and but the uh the people that you know back then you had to come out and unlock the cars and undo the horns but it really is tremendous to hear 40 horns going off in the middle of the night you know and really just fun times and here i'm with all these guys doing this but i'm trying to do a music education too i was majoring in music so i had to get ready for piano recitals and all that and practicing but tell them about when you're running through the neighborhood after you well pulled the horns down. one of the times we did this several times but one of the times i was um we, I was running back to our dorm and uh, that direction, and me and another guy were running side by side. We're running through the neighborhood uh, on the sidewalks. All of a sudden, a police car pulls up right beside us. And this friend of mine took off one place, and the car was staying. The police car was staying with me, so I ducked in the back of this house. And um, I thought, well, I'll just get it, lose a guy in the back. I came around the back of this house. And there must have been a seven-foot fence. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. There was a huge fence. So I couldn't get out. So I, I ran back around. By then, the police were there, stopped. They were standing out. It caught me. And um, he asked me, started interrogating, you know, what are you doing out? And I said, well, I'm uh, jogging. You know, and why are you running through a back neighborhood? I said, well, I'm running cross country. <laughs> and uh, so my smart mouth, 
I he was gonna put me in the police car and uh, take me down the to the small town, you know, police office. And uh, but anyway, then he got a, a serious call from some wreck or something had happened, so he, he let me go. So, um, but we would do fun stuff, do things like that, you know, all the time. But I had a key to the, you know, I didn't have to go back to the uh, dorm. dorm because I had a key to like the band hall where we had band concerts and I had my own key. I don't know where I got it, but I would just go there and sleep on the couch at night. Sometimes if we were doing stuff, I didn't even have to go back to the dorm. And so we had keys to the band hall and just fun things like that during college. And we, you know, had really some good guys on our floor, just a lot of fun times. And we'd go fishing together and have big fish fries and have our own stuff, you know. One more story. Tell them about what they did at one of those cookouts. The Kool-Aid. The Kool-Aid. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you want to hear this or not. But <laughs> oh, we do. We, uh, well, we all want to hear this. You well, know? our floor, we had our own, um, like, we'd have uh, like cook stoves, like you take for camping. And we would go out. These guys were great fishermen, and they would go trout fishing or go wherever, and we'd bring back all this fish, and we'd have these big fish fries, 40 men, you know, and they could eat a lot of fish. And so um, my roommate and I, David Hazy, he was really part of all this stuff, but um, him and I decided one time, okay, let's, let's do something mean to all these guys. These are our friends. And so we went out and bought probably – 20 boxes of X-Lax <laughs> and we couldn't find any liquid X-Lax or anything. So we bought 20 boxes of X-Lax, these pills, and we would take and break them up and, um, and grind them up. And we made these, it was a big, Oh, what a gallon, maybe glass jar. And we made Kool-Aid and we put these 20 boxes of X-Lax. I, it was a lot <laughs> into this big gallon jar and uh and sugar and stuff and here's all these guys eating you know 40 guys these guys are rough guys big guys had our intramural floor and did intramural sports and so we would go around they'd be you know eating fish and uh, hey let me give you some kool-aid and we'd be pouring <laughs> their kool-aid into their glasses we didn't have pop we just pour kool-aid and uh they say what's all this stuff floating around in it we said that's just un, you know sugar that has you know sugar particles you know and we did that to all 40 guys and the next day starting in that that night all these 40 guys none of them went to class they all had diarrhea really bad and um they were just terrible and they thought it was bad fish you know they blamed it on the fish and uh so my roommate and i never told a soul so after we got out of college, because those guys would have stripped us down naked and taken us out five miles, made us walk back or do something like that. And so we never told a soul, though, that was us. And really, none of them went to class the next morning because the, they shared a bathroom and they all had to take turns in there. And uh, so that was some of the things You're going to have did. people hunting you down now when yeah. this comes out, now that yeah. we've got it on the record. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, later. so we just, things like that. But anyway, I grew up, I went to college, and I was going to be a band teacher. And so I have an instrumental vocal degree, and I was I did my student teaching in Lebanon High School, 
And then I was going to, uh, I applied at a couple schools, but I just really didn't have a heart to uh, so much to do all the band. I loved music, but it was just a tool. Um, let me back up how I became a Christian. I grew up in a wonderful family, went to church a lot, but I had a lot of head knowledge. I knew about Jesus, but um, in my junior year in high school, I knew there was something missing in my life. I had gone to church a lot. Uh, every Sunday morning, I played the piano even for services. Um, so I, But I knew there was something missing, and I couldn't quite figure out what it was. And so um, at that time, about my junior year, I had uh, two young men that I knew from high school in Blue Springs. And Blue Springs was a small town. I mean, people had guns carried guns in the back of their truck, you know, on racks. And it was just a small farming town kind of. And uh, so that these two young men were out on the railroad tracks shooting right inside Blue Springs city limits with 22s. And a train started, turned, came around the corner, started coming down the train tracks. And they were shooting 22s on the train track. And the two young men, um, ran up the bank to get away from the trains and the young man in the back had the 22. He slipped, kind of fell and he pulled the trigger and shot my other friend in the head. And, um, that made me start thinking about eternity and where would I spend eternity? And I knew there was something missing in my life. Religion didn't fill it and going to church didn't fill that emptiness. And so one day in my own home, there was nobody else around. I just said a simple prayer. I didn't, I just said, Jesus, I'm tired of the way I'm living. I'm tired of the emptiness. And I know there's something missing. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've done wrong things. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart, my life. Save me, change me. I'll live for you. And, uh, that, was like the beginning for the first time in my life. I felt a peace that I had never had before. I felt that that emptiness had been filled and I didn't see, you know, lightning in the sky or something, but it was just simple act of faith that I said, Jesus, you're my only hope, not going to church, not being baptized, not trying to live a good life. It was just all on Jesus. He had died on the cross for my sins. And I realized that and so I put my faith and trust in him. And that's still my faith and trust. It's not going to church today. It's going to get me to heaven or being good or whatever. It's all that what Jesus did at the cross. So that's when I became a Christian, so to speak, uh, born again, if you want to use that term. But, um, and I found the Lord. And so then, uh, that was in end of high school, went to college, did all the fun things, you know, but, <laughs> and a music director, music education i was going to be banned well then i started wait before you go on tell how you became mr mocan oh as mr southwest oh i okay i got an award you know i never tried anything but i just i didn't i wasn't in any of the school like um, debates or school uh, student council stuff like that because i was so busy music practicing for my senior recitals and hours and all that and band. So, um, but one day I read this little book and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, maybe I dare you or something, but this man challenged you to 
develop four dimensions of your life and spiritual and the mental and different things. But one was, um, friendships, develop friendships. So I determined in this college that I was going to develop friendships. And so I started, and it sounds crazy here, but I would be walking to class and usually in a, you just get to know people in your department music, or if you're in English, English department. But I made a determination I was going to try to learn everybody on my college campus, their mm -hmm. name. So I just decided, okay, so I'd be walking to a, a class, going to a cafeteria, and somebody be walking there, and I'd walk up beside them and say, just strike up a conversation. Hi, Micah, <laughs> you know, you know, and, and, or I just, what's your name? And he'd say, Micah, Micah, okay, I'm Gordon. And I just made a point to try to really remember your name and learn it. And uh, so as I did this for maybe a year, I just got to know people and um, know their names. And I would just say, hi, I'd get to know people. And uh, so anyway, make a long story short, um, later on that year, maybe my senior year, getting ready to graduate, and they had all these famous, all these people that everybody knew. They're involved in all the different things. And, uh, they somehow I got voted, uh, Mr. Southwest now. And, um, was in the, in this college yearbook at Mr. Southwest. And I know it, the only reason I won that award is because that whole year I took time just to get to know other people and to make them feel important by learning their name. And so I got voted. That's what you're talking about. But what Mr. happened was then everybody knew who he was. Everyone knew Gordon Christman. Yeah, yeah. probably so. so. Well, everyone does know Gordon yeah, Christman. Yeah, that's Char true. true. The notorious Gordon Shari right. Christman <laughs> duo. And going back, our dorm, my brother, uh, Jim, we had repelling equipment. And we'd repel off the sides of our dorm at night. <laughs> You know, I mean, so we did crazy things. So we probably not always good things. Didn't but. you say before you graduated for like two weeks, you were hiding in other people's <laughs> dorms because well, the pranks? Yeah, I, my last two weeks, um, I stayed off campus and different people's because I knew those guys on my floor, they would take you out and uh, strip you down naked, make you walk back to the dorm in your underwear five miles away. Just <laughs> things like that. And, I, and they've, some of the things we have done, they people would get back at us. So I stayed out of there as much as I could. So, You're like, I'm trying to graduate and get out of here, and I don't want to be. That's right. Tortured. It took, it took him five years to. It took me five years to graduate. <laughs> well, he changed I his. Changed my degrees yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah, I enjoyed music. But I enjoyed music. I love music because of my family and history and all my brothers and my mom. But I really saw music more as not a. Um, a love, but as a tool to work with people and talk to them about the Lord. Hmm. That's what I really came to want to use music for, just to use it for the Lord. So I graduated from college. I was going to go uh, be a band teacher, but it didn't really work out, and uh, I didn't really get a job right off. And so to make a long story short, I was back one weekend, and uh, there was a thing called a group called Kansas City Youth for Christ. It was a big organization. I had gone there when I was a teenager, and it's a Christian organization, but they would have rallies every Saturday night with 2,000 teenagers, and they had music groups and television and all this stuff. And so um, 
what I did, um, then I, they offered me a job. When I went to one of the camps just to be a counselor for a week, and they knew me from my high school. I hadn't really seen anybody for three or four years, but I'd graduated with a music degree. So David Lewis came and said, hey, Gordon, would you go to our, uh, they had a, a one-year Bible college and sing in our quartet, and while you're doing that, work with the music groups. And because uh, and he was transitioning himself out of that area, music, and was going to be the assistant manager, the main manager of the television station. So I did that for a year. I was in a quartet traveling, and then I worked with all the music groups, and then he transitioned out. And then for maybe, what, 10 years, I did music and television uh, for Kansas City Youth for Christ. We'd have big musicals. We'd have rallies of 2,000 teenagers. I had music groups that would sing on the rallies. Every Saturday night, we had our produced our own television shows. And it was really a wonderful time. And I worked with some great people. And one of the people that was a great musician was a woman named Mary Bubolts, And her and her husband, and just close friendships. But um, it really was a really great time because I've worked with some of the greatest musicians, kids from Shawnee Mission. I pick, had the pick of music groups from Shawnee Mission, Oak Park, Lee Summit, Blue Spring. Kids that would uh, drive sometimes 75 miles to be in my music groups. And so we had, they would sing on rallies. And so that's kind of this. So anyway, backing up. Let me just tell really quick, those kids had to audition to get into his groups. And I'm sitting over here at my desk. This, we're jumping ahead of stuff. And I'm listening to these auditions. And they're telling him, sing sing these notes, like C, D, F. And they had to hit that and sing those notes a cappella, knowing the notes. And I was like, who knows how to do that? Who knows <laughs> how to do that? And But they did. And, and so it was truly the cream of the crop of the teenagers from the whole metropolitan area that got to be in these groups. So it was a great time of music, but when our music, you know, even though they sang at big rallies, Christian rallies, we always had a time where we could study the Bible a little bit together for maybe 20 minutes, and it was more than just music. It was talking about God, too. and uh, It was discipleship. Discipleship. But anyway, um, so one day we were having this big musical. I mean, it's like... 45 minute musical and we were have rehearsals on a Saturday afternoon and I was in David Lewis's office with some young men and maybe we were practicing I mean, but there's a piano in there and so we were practicing some parts and doing some things and all of a sudden the phone rings and I was thinking oh, okay I better answer this you know so I answered the phone and it would happen to be Shari and she was calling from the Kansas City Philharmonic Orchestra. No, I was calling from home, but yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> she was saying, you know, hey, I, I applied. I haven't heard anything from uh, about TV50. And um, and then she said, I'm the assistant manager of the Kansas City Philharmonic Orchestra. And I thought, oh, I better pay attention to this. <laughs> I thought I was just going to hang up and say, you know, forget about it. Call you back know, on Monday. Call back on I thought, oh, I better pay attention. This is probably somebody important, you know. <laughs> so I took down her name and phone number, and then I told Dave Lewis a little later on, you know. Then we went on and had our rehearsals and a big musical that night. But that was the first time I had contact with Shari. I took her phone call from... And this seems like a great place to pause, and we'll have you all join us for part two 
interviews with uh, Gordon Shari Chrisman. So thank you guys for sharing some of your stories today. We're going to jump right back in in the next episode. Have you guys share about your love affair. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> Thanks for joining me for the Pray for Micah podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review. And check out my YouTube channel and follow me on social media. Pray for Micah Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We'll see you next time. You are now re-entering the normal world.